On today's episode, we'll discuss recent events such as the George Zimmerman trial and the cross-controversy of the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team, as well as the newest society news and the coming canonizations of John XXIII and John Paul II. We'll also discuss our roads to traditionalism and how being a traditionalist has influenced our views on the role of education in modern life. Episode 2 of Seed of Wisdom Radio. I'm H.W. McIntyre, joined as always by Mr. Philip Carrion. Getting right back into our story. Uh, in St. Louis, um, this, the St. Louis baseball team, the Cardinals, uh, one of the brightest and best and hottest baseball teams in baseball this year, has a bit of a controversy. Uh, on the pitcher's mound, right behind the pitcher on the backside of the mound, um, it looks like some pitchers or someone has been drawing a cross uh, for whatever reason. Now, usually team logos or or uh, you know some little mark is there along with a rosin bag which pitchers use. But now this very this symbol of our faith and of our salvation is now on the pitcher's mound of a major league baseball team, which is very surprising to see. And not surprisingly, people who do not like Christ or the faith or the cross or anything it stands for have gone after the Cardinals and again in in a manner that is not unexpected the team capitulated they said that they would have the cross removed that they wanted it removed that they don't want any pitcher uh, making a cross on the mound because in their words um, the Cardinals team represents a community and it wants to cater to People regardless of race, creed, uh, gender, the typical quote-unquote diversity that uh, our modern world enshrines so much. Um, And in a move that surprises many, including myself, uh, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, which usually makes makes their life mission uh, to remove any reference to Christ or God, from society, to efface that from society, they have defended um, this cross on the mound, um, kind of in the fashion of Voltaire. Uh, They may disagree with what you say, but they will defend your right to say it. (laughs) The ACLU thing was the funniest bit uh, of that article to me. I I kind of skimmed through the article and saw the ACLU at, at the end and just assumed it was going to be some you know, uh, anti-Christian diatribe from the ACLU, but they actually stood up for the Cardinals and in a very sort of libertarian way said, well, it's their private property at Bush Stadium and they can put on it whatever they want. So I I thought that was the funny twist to the article. Um, Otherwise, the rest of it wasn't a big surprise to me. I mean, was it to you? No. um, It's, you know, anything... um well, in the modern world, religion is kind of seen as this thing, this kind of coat and hat that you leave at the door, especially when it comes to work and or business and professional sports are is a business. Um, it's it's about making money, and I think that was my reaction. Um, let's not anger anyone who might not like Christianity, 
because that will that is gonna hurt our bottom line. And you know, we're the Cardinals. We care about making money. Um, so let's get rid of this yeah, cross. The funny um, thing I think was, and and the part of it that's almost ripe for parody, is you <laughs> see the pictures on the article, and the cross is very small on the pitcher's mound. Like I'm sure most of the people in the stadium could not even see it. It was yeah. like one of those things where you're watching television and they show one little, you know, close up on maybe the pitcher, you know, on the mound or his mm-hmm. his leg or something, and you can see this t- tiny little cross. Um, I don't know. I thought that was kind of funny that anyone would be offended by that, but yeah, and this whole thing about being offended—I don't know how that would offend you. I mean, what, does it does it hurt your feelings? Does it make you feel sad inside? It's it's really kind of well to yeah. me. It's it's just really foolish. And um, I suppose the argument would go that all of the you know Muslims and Buddhists and Wiccans watching would <laughs> associate the team with Christianity. And would feel like their beloved cardinals are, you know, not their own. Well, uh, you know, when when the, when the city is called St. Louis and it's named after one of the greatest saints who ever <laughs> lived, and the mascot is cardinals, kind of one of the most uh, well, Catholic things ever. I, give I, it time. I guess we can. Yeah, we just need to overlook that. Um, <laughs> and let's not forget that they play in in Bush Stadium. So I'm pretty sure, like Muslims, um, you know. Yeah. Are going to want to support, you know, the the biggest beer manufacturer on earth. <laughs> well, give it time. Pretty soon it'll be like St. Chavez or something. All right. And um, with that said and done, let's go on to our next story. Uh, nearly, well, quite a while after the initial incident, which resulted in the death of the teenaged Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman is finally standing trial uh, for murder. Um, in the state of Florida, um, to me, this trial seems to be a kind of a kind of a spectacle. It's kind of a political event that people are kind of using to blow up race issues in the United States. Um, it always seems that race is, to me, in my experience, as someone who's not who would be considered part of a quote-unquote minority, um, it always seems to me that the minorities are the ones making a big deal out of race. Um, You know, they're the ones causing trouble. They're the ones wanting it to be noticed as opposed to people who get along with everybody, like me, um, who don't make it a big deal. It's part of of one's identity, but that's it. Um, And unfortunately, we're seeing a kind of rise in racial tension in the United States. Along with this trial, um, across the United States, although I haven't experienced it myself, there are these things known as flash mobs and, you know, where a bunch of people would just gather and apparently these mobs now will target people based on race. Um, Not to be confused with the uh, popular YouTube flash mob. Yeah, which, I mean, that's what I initially thought it was, yeah, people which getting is a, together and, like, doing the Harlem Shake or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, sort of, a, in my opinion, sort of a tacky uh, pastime where a bunch of people get together and uh, right, they, dance you know, they to have, some like, the world's biggest pillow fight, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, the, the Zimmerman trial, I think you're right. I think it's being used, whether uh, it, this is fair or fitting or not, it's being used as sort of a... Uh, I don't know, it's like a battlefield for all racial tension yeah. in America. 
Um, and I don't think that's fair. I think that there's probably a lot of different opinions on the trial and on the events. Uh, I think that the one thing we can all agree upon, of course, is that it's tragic that Trayvon Martin died. Um, tragic in the sense that someone for, lost yeah. their life. Uh, for a teenager, and, and, too. A yeah, teenage a teenager kid. lost his life. Yeah. And whether, it, it, whether uh, it's his fault that he lost his life or not, which is, of course, what sort of, in a backhanded way, what, what we're what they're trying to determine at this trial. Yeah. Um, of course, it's a, it's a tragedy in the sense that, uh, you know, one of God's creatures, uh, one of God's children, you know, was was is killed and, and should have been doing something else with his life, obviously, uh, yeah. for the next, he was a young kid, you know, 50, 60 Maybe years 50, of his 60 life. Years, yeah. uh, and so that won't be the case anymore. Um, but uh, Without going into the whole trial, because we could spend hours talking about yeah, that. Yeah, and I don't, and I wouldn't want to really get into the whole thing because that that's going to entail what happened, and it's, it's right. quite an old and story. And you and I, and this is one of the things that I think the media tends to look over, uh, is <laughs> that there's a trial happening, and um, you kind of have to go with what the verdict of the trial is. Now, obviously. The jury can be wrong. The jury can come up with, you know, can deliberate and come up with the wrong conclusion or what have you. But as of right now, there's no conclusion. So there's really nothing for us to argue about. Yeah. You know, nothing for the media to be putting a spin on. I mean, it's the facts, I guess, have come out over the tri- over the course of the trial. And I've kind of kept up with it, but not a whole lot. But the big story is this, that the trial is not coming to a close, that they're worried that there's going to be the sort of riding uh, of maybe in the African American communities, uh, people who are upset if Tra- if if George Zimmerman, excuse me, is, is found, is found yeah. not guilty. Yeah, and I, I think it's unfortunate because Zimmerman is kind of being pushed as the quote unquote white guy, even though he's. I saw a picture of him as a kid. He he looks pretty Mexican to me. He doesn't look like a white guy. Right. Well, I mean, he he looks you know american he doesn't look like you know you know uh, peyton manning or anything right but i but you know it seems to me like i said as someone who's kind of who has you know out in the west on the uh, west coast you know people make a big deal out of these things um it's like well we're gonna riot if they don't find him guilty that's not that's not going to help the situation it's just going to harm businesses and property and it's going to make the the community you know if the black community decides to do that to me it makes them look bad it makes them look kind of like a whining teenage kid who doesn't get their way well yeah i mean this is the point right this is the tension with race in america is that you have people from every side uh wanting to uh assume the innocence of someone based upon their race and and I think the worst about the other side, I mean, right, um, right. The and neoconservative Fox News side wants to show that Trayvon Martin was this weed smoking, right. immature hoodlum who wore a hood and, and was a threat to the community. Right. And and the other side, the liberal side, wants to show uh, Zimmerman as kind of the the stereotypical guns right, right. gun rights, uh, you know, kind of a redneck figure who just hated black people and found his excuse to kill a kid. And I don't think the truth is in either of those statements. I think uh, yeah, and and it's, even it's if more it was, it yeah. seems like it's the wrong intention there but yeah i think the in closing about this topic the the one thing that i always come back to um as you just as we were just talking about you know uh, assuming uh, race uh, or assuming guilt 
or innocence based upon race, it's still funny to me um, that the president of the country, uh, before even most of the facts were in, was making comments in public about basically assuming the assumption, or assuming, sorry, the innocence of Trayvon Martin because of more or less the fact that he would look like Obama's son had Obama had a son. So. And as a lawyer, he would know better. He would know better to never comment on a uh, pending legal <laughs> investigation. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's taught, you know, your first year of law school, but, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe they don't teach that in the Ivy Leagues anymore. Yeah, well, who knows? <laughs> in any case, we're moving on to our next story now, and this concerns the Society of St. Pius X. Um, on the prominent traditionalist blog, Rorate Chaley, um, it was reported that the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia, through its website, released a communique describing the society as a, quote, schismatic sect. Um, it repeated the lines that Benedict XVI used against the society, saying that they offer no legitimate canonical function, and it was essentially a neoconservative hit piece by a neoconservative diocese. Um, it, it had all of the things that you would expect to find against the um, the SSPX that you know they don't. It doesn't fulfill your Sunday obligation. Um, it's really not Catholic. Don't go there. Go somewhere else. Um, you know, ooh schismatics. You know, ooh rebels. Um, <laughs> the funny thing about this to me is now obviously I'm I'm very uh, you know I, I support the society uh, very strongly. Um, and so uh, we're all used to hearing these things about the society from yeah. the neo-Catholic media. But what I thought was interesting and what you don't always hear uh, is the word schism being thrown around. And, yeah. I, and I would wonder, I'd be interested to hear whoever the author of it was. I mean, I'm sure it has something to do with the bishop. Um, but how in any way the society could be said to be schismatic when it, the society as a whole... Um, purports to, you know, accept the legitimacy of all of the post-conciliar papacies. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it's kind of funny because um, schism isn't really used a lot anymore because they can't cite the, uh, the uh, excommunication since they've been lifted. Right. But, but um, there's always been some kind of excuse. Uh, irre- irregular or, uh, you know... Um, Right. Disobedient is right. the one that they not, always use. I'm not a canon lawyer, but it would seem to me, it seems to me that irregularity or the lack of regularization does not necessarily mean schism. But I guess we could save that question for maybe if we could get a canon lawyer on the show at some point. One day I think we can. Um, I just, I mean, it's it's really weird because the uh, Rome sends out several mixed, uh, mixed uh, signals. They, um, on one hand, they let society priests offer mass in St. Peter's on the side altars of the holiest shrine in Christendom. On the other hand, they're saying that uh, uh, this group has no, uh, they offer no legitimate canonical function, that they're essentially right. a non-Catholic group. Right. You have this bishop uh, who, uh, you know, all bishops are, um, they exercise the authority of the Pope in their diocese, um, uh, saying that, you know, that these people, that the society is not Catholic or not quote-unquote regular, not because of some disciplinary thing, but for doctrinal reasons. Right, right. And now if it's for doctrinal reasons, um, 
that means you know they'd have to be heretics. No, I mean, but but then they're using the word schism. So I mean, it. Right. And on then, one and hand, you'll never be, you'll never catch. I don't think I don't think that you will ever catch Rome or any prelate, uh, certainly any cardinal, because to be a cardinal usually uh, implies that one is quite diplomatic and intelligent. And I so I don't think you'll ever catch any cardinal or 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 pope. Uh, at least anytime soon, saying that the society is heretical because yeah, that because I think it, would be it would be telling on themselves. It would be. It really. <laughs> it would be. And I think that would be. And I think they know that. I think that and they I, know the, that that would be the, a dangerous the, thing. The to one do. who came closest. The one who came closest to doing that was Mueller. Gerard right. Mueller, the head right. of the Inquis- the head of the Inquisition, yeah. or its modern day equivalent. I think he described them as being heretical, and so one would have to ask him. Um, since society only believes what um, was believed until the council, and you know, I mean, there's so many questions. Yeah. It's so it's so cloudy. You know, they, right. people say it was a, it was a pastoral council, but then you have to quote unquote ascend to the modern magisterium, and then all the modern bishops act like it was the greatest thing ever. Right. Uh, even the, um, the the newest in Francis's latest encyclical, he he talks about faith being enhanced through the understanding of. The Second Vatican Council. So mm-hmm. this this event that happened uh, fifty years ago is seen as yeah, it's said to be non important, but important at the same time. Doctrinal, right. but not doctrinal at the same time. Right. So it's and I think that uh, maybe on a, on another episode later on, I would be very interested, and I'm not sure who we could get as a guest on the show that could talk with some authority on this. But I've always been very interested in. Uh, the discussions between Rome and the society that have really ended at this point. Um, yeah. But we had, uh, I'm sure most of our listeners will be well aware of this, there was what seemed to be a, an agreement in place, uh, a doctrinal preamble that Bishop Fillet and the society could sign off on, and Bishop Fillet flew to Rome and basically was handed something different that he could not sign off on, and there seems to be a lot of almost, uh, cons- not conspiracy theories as much, but just different intriguing ideas about what happened there and whether Pope Benedict was was tricking the society or whether... Uh, or it, it was one of the evil cardinals. Yes, and Pope Benedict was overrun, <laughs> as all yeah. of the post-conciliar popes, of course, have been prisoners in Rome, this, in Rome as the yeah. argument goes. So I, that would be an interesting topic. But that sort of leads us into our, our last... Uh, news story, um, or our last recent news story, I guess. We'll talk about the canonizations or the upcoming canonizations of John and John and John Paul. Uh, but also on Rorte Celi, there was a, a discussion of the declaration that was released by the Society, I think, last week, uh, maybe yes. a week and a half ago, which reaffirmed their stance on, on many issues, including religious liberty and the Novus Ordo Mass and all of those things. Um, but the end, uh, which Rorarte pulled out at the very end of the document, they said that they would wait uh, and they wouldn't accept any agreement until Rome converted or, and this was the part that Rorarte uh, emphasized, or they were basically given carte blanche mm-hmm. to call out all of the post-conciliar errors. And there's even a line in there which I thought was interesting. And to, I don't know the exact line, this isn't a quote, but something along the lines of, calling out whoever they felt they needed to call out, like within the structure of the church, on yeah. post-conciliar errors. Um, yeah. 
and Rorote was making kind of a big deal about that, and I, I, I thought that was interesting. Um, I don't particularly see any reason why the society, if they are given some guarantees, why they shouldn't regularize if they are, uh, if they feel like there's a certainty that they will be able to um, call out everything uh, mm-hmm. that they continue to call out now in an irregular, quote-unquote, um, you know, fashion. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's... Yeah, to me, well, first my thoughts on the on that declaration. One, I think it reaffirms what uh, the society has always held, and what the Archbishop, uh, God rest his soul, always held, that the problems of the Second Vatican Council are not in its implementation or its hermeneutic, or its spirit or its popular belief, but they are intrinsic to the text of the Council itself. Right. The problem of religious liberty is in the words of Dignitatis Humanae, and the problem of ecumenism is in uh, Unitatis Redintegratio and Nostra Aetate and, and everything else and so on. Right. So it reaffirmed that, and it it's basically calling out Rome, uh, the conciliar Rome, on, uh, you know, kind of the deals they've done. We, we all know that the fraternity of St. Peter cannot go guns blazing against the council or against the local ordinary they can and depending on where they are in the world it depends and if a priest says it in a savvy way but the institute can't do this uh the institute of the good shepherd uh, l'institut des bons pasteurs in france um was initially guaranteed um the ability to uh criticize the council in a constructive manner but that was kind of taken away and then they had to Unless I'm mistaken, they had to um, swear some kind of oath upon the um, conciliar... <laughs> the oath for modernism. Oath for modernism on the catechism of the of the Catholic Church, which was released in 92. So, you know, the three bishops, uh, Bishop Follet, Bishop uh, Tissier de Malaray, and uh, Bishop uh, de Galareta, they know what's up. You know, they're not fools, they're not being... The, the modernists in Rome aren't going to be able to gaffle them. They're not right. going to be sold this poisonous thing. If you disagree, if one were to disagree on the course they've taken, that's something entirely different. But um, as you said, if they are given this ability to uh, criticize guns blazing and they have a guarantee to be treated as everyone else is in the conciliar church, I don't see how they can refuse it because all three of those bishops say that there is no doubt that um, Francis is the supreme pontiff, the vicar of Christ on earth, and that he heads the Catholic Church and that the men he appoints to seize are true bishops and therefore successors to the apostles. And for one to refuse uh, subjection to these men who they say have the authority of Christ on earth is, is quite a foolish and dangerous thing to do. Yeah. They're not going to say that these men are usurpers or they've lost their office. They don't say that. Right. I agree. And, and I think that, I think that the, this recent declaration, um, and one can't get mad at them for not saying that. That's just not their belief. And that's it. You know? Right. I think that the, uh, as a pro SSPX, um, traditionalist, uh, you know, seeing, I guess the camp that I would fall in with as being the society camp, I would have to say that uh, a lot of us, if not all of us, were quite timid um, and anxious about the talks um, Mm -hmm. and about any sort of compromise or anything like that. 
in every trad, even even me and and those who are of my persuasion, were watching it attentively, and um, we didn't want you know the, right. a large group of Catholics to be swallowed up right. by this right. uh, modernist Rome. Right, and I think that this declaration has put a lot of those fears to rest. As far as has the society capitulated with modernism and post-conciliarism, I think it's put a lot of those fears to rest. It was quite. It wasn't even just condemning of the post-conciliar errors. It was. It was. It had a little bite to it, I would say. It was, it was, you know, it, it wasn't overly diplomatic. It it stressed the uh, the dangers of the post-conciliar errors, and, and I think council, that, yeah. and so I think that put a lot of those fears to rest. So we'll see. I don't think that I think the talks at this point are are done. They've cooled off. I don't think that Francis has any interest in the society. No, me neither. Uh, I don't think they're even on his radar. I don't yes. think. Yes, uh, it remains to be seen. So who who knows? I mean, obviously, God is always working at, in mysterious ways, and oftentimes we like to predict the future and something completely crazy happens, but we'll see. And I would agree with you that this shows that the society has not been neutered or silenced or uh, muted. They are still railing against the uh, heirs of conciliar Rome. And finally, to our last segment of the news portion of the show, um, it was reported recently that... Um, Pope Francis, the conciliar pope, um, is going ahead and is going to canonize both John Paul II and John XXIII. Uh, the second miracle was approved for John Paul II, and um, and something that's quite unusual, uh, Francis waived the requirement for a second miracle for John XXIII, uh, so he only has one miracle dating back to the, uh, the mid to late 1960s. Uh, with his sister in Italy, I believe. But um, I think it's quite interesting because John Twenty-Third obviously ushered in the revolution. Yes, he didn't do anything blatantly as bad as his successors have, but he was the one who called for this council. I think everything was... He wrecked the job that Pius Twelfth and uh, Pius Eleventh and um, Benedict Fifteenth and St. Pius X did... But he had assistance from modernists who were just lying in wait everywhere. He, he, he wrecked, you know, the church, which was doing so good. Vocations were booming. Schools were opening everywhere. Churches were opening. Excuse me. And uh, he ushered this in. And John Paul II was kind of the Napoleon of the conciliar revolution of modernism. John Paul II kind of stabilized it he gave it this conservative face and for them now to be raised for the conciliar church to attempt to raise them to the altars shows that they're trying to sanctify and um, bless and beatify um, everything that they did which yeah was, i think it's 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 like a canonization of the council almost yeah um, and I think this is as good of a, a time as any to reveal maybe one of the more interesting facts of this show, or hopefully what's one of the more interesting facts, which is that the two hosts is, uh, one, yourself is a set of a contest, correct? That's correct. I want to put words in your mouth. I know that you no, are. No, yeah, I, I know. You okay. So, <laughs> and I am not. I am not. So, um, so this is, is probably an issue for you, but not, not a crisis of faith or anything like that. Um. For us uh, who are not set of a contest, it's it's concerning, um, and there's been a lot of talk in the traditional world, I think, lately because of this on the infallibility of canonizations, um, and 
I am actually uh, admittedly in the minority, especially in terms of the theologians and saints in church history. I'm not 100% sold on the infallibility of canonizations. I think that they probably uh, or almost definitely were or have been infallible. I think that the recent toying with the process... Yeah, I think uh, that would be the strongest argument by those who believe that these men are popes. Would the, the, the stronger argument would be that because it's been tampered with so much and right. that there, there is no, uh, for example, there is no... Um, devil's advocate there's no yeah. defender of the faith well we've gone from three them. miracles now to, to two one. Down to, to one, one. For John and one, one wonders if we won't maybe just get rid of that one as well yeah i mean if <laughs> just say whoever seemed like a great catholic we can just go ahead and say <laughs> that they were a saint um they must certainly be in heaven because hell is empty it'll be like the bomb balthazar canonizations mm. um yeah. but yeah, I think it's caused a crisis of faith for a lot of uh, set of plainest trads, and, and I think that it's uh, this issue of uh, the infallibility uh, or the fallibility of canonizations is an interesting one, and I, and I hope that we can do a show on that at some point. Yeah, I think that's a separate for the, show. Yeah. Um, but it is worth mentioning here just that that process is they're going to go ahead with that process, and. Um, I, I have said, um, and I, I may be wrong, but I, I have said that I would not be surprised for something to halt these canonizations and um, something, you know, uh, maybe even miraculous in nature. Uh, I think the scandal that will be caused by them is obviously... Uh, it's huge, and it's, even, I, even I fear it. Um, right. And even so, though I, have, you know, I, have, I don't have a dog in the, in the race, so to speak, right. um, I, I think it's, it's a huge scandal to many Catholics of goodwill who believe that this is the Catholic Church, that this is the mystical bride of Christ on earth, and who believe that these men are Christ's vicar on earth. Um, unless... I can clearly see in the external forum that one is professing heresy, has been excommunicated, or is a member of a schismatic sect. I cannot say that they are not Catholic. So for many people in the conciliar church, I have to say that, to the best of my knowledge, that they're Catholics. And unfortunately, they're going to hail John the Twenty-Third and JP Two as these great men who did so much for Catholicism when the opposite is true. They... They almost put the nails in the coffin of the true faith. Uh, John Paul II did almost everything that was possible to harm Catholicism. And the the only bishop in the church who was doing something against it, um, Archbishop Lefebvre, he punished and exiled and, and, and did all this too. So I think it's a huge scandal. Yes, I don't think that these men are popes. I don't think that these canonizations are real. But the damage that, that they do is still grave damage and it's still a grave scandal the, the one issue too I'm going to mention here in closing is that I think that it's possible beyond the uh, doctrinal concerns beyond the you know uh, the actions which were obviously scandalous uh, which we don't have to go into here you the, know, the, 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 the ecumenical mm-hmm. movements things like that um, I think that another cause for concern is how quickly these canonizations have gone yeah. through and uh unprecedented it is unprecedented. unprecedented and there's there's a it's somewhat unprecedented especially with papal canonizations i mean i know that there are um certain there's some evidence to show that there were certain canonizations especially ancient you know uh ancient saints which were canonized 
uh, in just a few years after that. Acclimation, yeah. And, and but that's, I mean, even, I think even the like, difference, for example, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. the difference with those saints um, is that, for better or for worse, we live in an age of, um, there's a paper trail for everything, uh, and especially with uh, a pope as opposed to a hermit living in a village somewhere, there's a lot of, or there's the possibility of a lot of skeletons in the closet. And I, I worry that, uh, you know, John Paul II could be canonized so quickly, and yet in a decade or two, we could come Something to find out that there was, yeah, and even, yeah. I'm, not in, I'm not implying, I don't want to imply yeah. that there's I anything there to find. All of the things, you know, all of the things he do, he's done speak for themselves. Right, but even just with the, the pedophilia scandal or the gay scandal, uh, there's a lot of missing pieces there as far as how it allow how so many priests were shuffled around and things like that, that you never know what might be found. And that would certainly be a huge scandal because I think that would certainly be unprecedented in church history where there was a saint who was canonized and, and after their canonization there was some terrible thing found. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, that, yeah. And that, that goes yeah. the way of the devil's advocate because there's no one searching these saints' yeah. lives anymore to, to try and find dirt. Uh, it's unbelievable. So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's and it's it is unprecedented the speed at which these men are being canonized. Um, I mean, almost. I'm pretty sure that the goal is going to be to canonize every conciliar pope. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny one to me because I don't understand how uh, more people don't see that. I have a lot of neo-Catholic friends and and they're very good people and they they have very good intentions, but I don't see how they don't logically see the novelty of and almost the. <sighs> what's the word, uh, like a desperation <laughs> yeah. to, to canonize the pr- council and to prove that these novelties are okay by canonizing every, every pope who has, who has helped spread the novelties. Yeah. So, anyways, I mean, that'll about, I, yeah. you, do you have something else to add well, just The last thing I up? wanted to add is, you know, Pius X, it took 50 years for him to be canonized. It took over 100 years to canonize Pius V, um, and, it, and the the last I think the last pope to be canonized before Pius V was uh, Gregory the Seventh. Yeah. All great popes. Um, it took him 500 years, and right. for John Paul II uh, to be canonized, uh, not even 10 years after his death, is unprecedented. Well, and you have now two popes, <laughs> two recent popes being canonized on the same day. I mean, we're, it's, just, yeah. it's this is un, there's literally yeah, no time in between post-conciliar canonizations at this point. No. So. It's and, almost and, like they're running out of time. And yet, Pius XII remains sign. on the back burner. Oh yeah, because he stood against. He st- he stands for everything they stood against. Right, right. Well, that about does it for our news segment. Uh, after the break, we are both of uh, your hosts. Um, we'll, we're going to discuss a little bit about our roads to traditionalism and and how we got to where we are today. Stay tuned. <laughs>
All right, welcome back. Uh, we are going to be discussing um, our roads to tradition. This is our second episode um, only of, of Seed of Wisdom Radio. And so uh, we thought that it would maybe be um, relevant uh, for the listeners to hear a little bit about how we got to where we are today. Um, and that might help inform, I guess, our future discussions um, on whatever issues we'll be discussing, uh, you know, whichever individuals we end up having on the show as guests, hopefully in the near future. Um, so, Phil, do you want to go ahead and, and tell us a little bit about how you became a radical traditionalist? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> sure. It, it's quite a story, um, but it's quite a fast story. I mean, I'm, I've barely broke uh, the two-decade mark, but I was born into a fairly regular um, Filipino and Mexican family. That is, I am a Filipino and Mexican extraction, and as anyone would know, those two races are very Catholic, uh, thanks to Catholic Spain. Um, in my family, um, church was seen as important. Uh, we would try to go to Mass, uh, Novus Ordo, of course, uh, every Sunday, but if something good came up, or if, uh, for example, uh, the Niners uh, were going to play Dallas that day, um, that mass was going to take uh, uh, was going to be on the back burner. Um, thanks be to God, though, uh, I was taught that prayer was important. I was taught to have respect for religious articles, for priests, for vocations, for the church. I was taught to cross myself every time I cro- uh, passed a church. I said grace before every meal. The church was never ridiculed in our family. Uh, it still isn't. Um, uh, taking our Lord's name in vain, blasphemy, that's it was never tolerated in our family. Um, and even as a kid, I kind of had a admiration for even Novus Ordo priests and Novus Ordo sisters. Um, I was always the kid who knew the most about religion in my class, even when I was in first, second, or third grade. I took uh, my religious instruction very seriously, thanks to my mom and my grandma, especially my maternal grandma. She uh, bought me uh, children's Bibles. A book on the life of the saints, for example. Uh, my 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 father's mom bought me my first rosary, uh, and I took I always took uh, the faith very seriously. Thanks be to God. I mean, I don't know why He chose me to give me this grace, but He did. Um, I didn't really get uh, a firm spoonful of what Catholicism really was until the seventh grade. Um, that year, the sister, who was a, a regular Novus Ordo sister, uh, was not going to teach us anymore, and they hired a layman who, like my co-host, was interested in these things, uh, and was in education, and he taught us some history, and he taught us you know, spelling, and he also taught us religion. And this man, who I appreciate very much for what he did, taught me that I needed to take my faith more seriously. He taught me that I couldn't be this typical liberal who just followed the flow of everyone else in my town. Um, I had to take the faith seriously, and that would mean uh, not being a straight Democrat voter anymore, (laughs) not believing that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare anymore, Uh, confessing my mortal sins before uh, I received our Lord. I mean, I wasn't taught that until I was in seventh grade. Um, I was taught, I remember he once mentioned that this, the SSPX was this kind of weird group who kind of liked the Latin mass and the Latin mass was better than the, the, uh, true mass. But at that point, at, when I, anytime I asked anyone, it was kind of seen as, 
well, the mass was the same thing as it is now, but it was just the priest had his back to you and it was in Latin. But another thing that helped me in my tradversion was um, singing. I sang with a uh, very respectable uh, boys chorus as a boy soprano and then as a tenor. And we sang the great pieces of, of Catholic um, composers, Mozart, uh, Schubert, Vivaldi, Palestrina, and, and so on, Beethoven. And when one sang these pieces, one could not help but feel God's presence. And that is what really initially led me to start to investigate um, what people had told me. Was this Mass just the Mass said in Latin, or did something else go on? I remember my grandmother gave me a book that my uncles used to learn how to serve Mass, and I became immediately enamored with it because the older stuff, like the older religious cards or the older books on the lives of the saints were very much better than my modern Catholic uh, books, which just told me to love other people and not kill anyone. Um, so as I moved on from uh, grades, from grammar, from, from middle school to high school, uh, and then into college, I slowly but surely became more traditional. I, I became a conservative what would one call a neocon uh for about two years i was firmly in the um father z or uh, new liturgical movement camp we just need to say the black and do the red and the holy father is you know our german shepherd pope benedict the 16th thank him so much for the motu proprio thank him so much for this revolution and brick by brick he's going to change everything and we just need to side with him um and he's going to fix everything um, for about a year or two, I was, well, first I was a very hard, if, if it can be called that, I was a very hardline FSS peer. I, uh, believed that the Society of St. Pius X was justified in doing what they were doing, um, but because of their regular situation, I did not want to place myself, um, under them, um, I was part of a group in my archdiocese that, would try to get petitions signed and articles passed and letters sent to uh, the local ordinary to have churches said. And, and so for a while, with a very uh, uncharacteristically hardline diocesan priest who, who never or who gave up the Novo Sordo Mass 30, over 30 years ago, we would have masses in different churches every week. But as I began to read um, what some hardline SSPXers said, and what Archbishop Lefebvre said, and, and I began to think about, you know, if these Novus Ordo sacraments were truly invalid, or they were dubious, or, or um, that's what really led me to become more hardline. Um, what should I think about the, the new Mass and everything that's happened? Are they, are they good, but uh, misinterpreted, or are they inherently bad? And I ultimately sided on the inherently bad camp. So for about a year, I was a uh, hardline SSPXer who believed that the SETI thesis could be correct, but I didn't want to make that judgment. Uh, I then heard a talk given by, uh, excuse me, by John Lane and uh, John Daly. Um, and after hearing that talk, I became immediately convinced uh, that these men could not be true popes. Turn to the dark side. And I, I, uh, I became a Sith Lord, um, <laughs> and I, I have horns coming out of my head like Darth Maul, and that is where I currently stand now. Um, so it was quite a journey. Um, basically, my high school years to my college years involved me growing more in my faith, but it was fun. 
Um, <laughs> I have a question was. for you. Um, Go ahead. One of the things that I find, I, I find, uh, you know, conversion or reversion, whatever you want to call them, stories, uh, pretty interesting. Um, I had a, a, a sort of big conversion or reversion uh, mm -hmm. myself. Um, and one of the things that I find really interesting is that it seems to me that most people convert either out of, um, have, I guess what I would call an intellectual conversion or mm -hmm. a, uh, I've heard it called emotional conversion. I would say spiritual conversion is probably yeah. better. Um, I think that there's a third and you seem to have maybe hinted at it here, um, almost like an artistic conversion in which one sort of more than having a spiritual revelation or an intellectual revelation has almost like a revelation of finding the beauty that they've sought everywhere else in life in the church. Um, mm -hmm. And you mentioned that in singing. Do you think that was your big push? Do you think it was more of an intellectual conversion or, or what? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I never thought about it before, but uh, I think singing played a huge part in me getting to know, well, first, you know, the face of traditional Catholicism is the Mass, because it is one of the most beautiful things on earth. And by studying and, and learning and singing this music, that's that was the way I got to know of uh, the true Mass and the true faith. And I don't think I would have got that far had it not been for singing with that chorus. Um, another big thing that helped me uh, with Catholicism in general was history, just studying history and, and seeing that, that mm. this was the true faith that Christ established um, and finally kind of being shocked into it I remember I, I watched this uh, Bishop Follet conference about four years ago and he said that you guys are here you faithful are here because you've been shocked something happened where you said you couldn't take it anymore and you just want to have the faith of your ancestors and I think that's certainly true uh, I can remember a couple of times in um when I was in high school, just awful uh, liturgical abuse, um, and and seeing you know the faith being treated as a joke, kind of made me more hardline. I mean, they used to call me the cardinal when I was in high school because I was so <laughs> I was just compared to everyone else, um, so religious. But I think later on, as I grew more hardline and I progressed. Uh, to, to the dark side, so to speak. <laughs> That's when it became more intellectual, more reading. Right, sure. Yeah. But sure. at first, initially, it was, it was because of art and the beauty. I mean, it's just, wow, the snows and bells and the chants, and mm -hmm. it's compared to, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high, and, <laughs> right, uh, and right. horse blankets as vestments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are yeah. your hair shirts, the post-consular yep. oh, yeah. hair shirts. Yep. Hmm. All right, well, my story is, uh, uh, I, I was raised in a nominally Catholic family. Um, I was raised in an Irish Catholic family, but one which generations going back had been just, uh, just superficially Catholic. Um, the interesting thing is that my great-grandmother, my grandfather... Uh, my father and all of my aunts and uncles on, on my paternal side all went to Catholic school. In fact, we all went to the same Catholic school. Um, so we were cradle Catholics. We were involved in Catholic education, raised in that environment. But yet, it seems to not never have been really taken very seriously. Um, uh, and so the environment I was raised in was um, actually a pretty Protestant one. 
Um, you know, I went to the post conciliar school and kind of mm-hmm. that was that was all fluff. And then yeah. at home, my <laughs> my my father um, was quite religious, but had sort of been he, you know, he was a victim of. Um, you know, of lack of catechesis or bad yeah. catechesis. And so he saw the church as this man-made institution and, and it sold indulgences and, you know, all of these scandals and that real Christianity was just being a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, this... this being a good person. Yeah, this vague concept yeah. of being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a Bible-believing Christian, you know, very Protestant, evangelical sort of thing. So that was kind of the atmosphere that I was raised in. And I accepted that up until probably, um, uh, you know, nine or ten years old. Uh, and I started to think a little bit more about things. And, and even more than thinking about things, I think I was kind of just more annoyed and disgusted <laughs> by uh, that sort of evangelical <laughs> Christianity yeah. yeah, and the music and everything. It, that was very, uh, it just seemed so stupid, <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs> um, and so I kind of became very rebellious in a spiritual sense. Um, I, uh, I thought Christianity was bunk, especially probably my eighth grade freshman year of high school, um, I became really uh, convinced that Christianity was uh, just rubbish, just joke. arbitrary, completely made up, um, and especially Catholicism. Uh, and I, for some reason, though, I would still, I would say I was very interested in spiritual things, um, and I became very interested in, in God. And I was convinced that there was still a God or gods. Um, and by that point, I had sort of some vague philosophical notions about, you know, causation and things like that and not being able to be an atheist. Um, yeah. So I began searching, and I went on this uh, pluralistic search of all the world's religions, and I read Buddha, uh, you know, I read about Buddhism um, I read the Bhagavad Gita and the different Hindu texts. Uh, I even got into Rumi, you know, Sufism and different Islamic <laughs> stuff. And was really wild, uh, really weird sort of stuff in high school. Yeah. Um, All the while going to a uh, post-conciliar. Right, yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was very vocal about it. And I had some friends who were also nominally Catholic. And some of them by the grace of God, you know, would say, I don't know why what you're doing is wrong, uh, but it is. <laughs> and I think that in, in of course, in, in just about every way it was wrong, but there was a sincerity there that I yeah. was really intellectually and spiritually thirsting for some truth. Yeah, because you weren't getting it from, you know, right, sort of... Right, and in my rebellion, the rebellion of my youth, you know, I had a, a, a certain sense of that this is, this is rubbish. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, I uh, was convinced that anything anything could be the answer. I was actually quite interested in Hinduism and spent a lot of time on Hinduism and, and, and tried to, in a very beginner, sort of amateur way, practice Hinduism. Um, and I was convinced, though, that Catholicism was the one religion that wasn't true. Yes, um, yeah, there's just no chance right. this is just, yeah. Right, and uh, luckily I had a, 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 similar to you, I had a very great teacher in high school. Um, he didn't teach theology, but he incorporated in theology into his, his lectures and things. And he ended up um, convincing me, more or less, over the course of a couple of years in high school. I took him for maybe 
two or three different classes of the uh, you know the veracity of of Christianity and Catholicism, and it was kind of this big um, conversion. I started reading a lot of you know C.S. Lewis and and G.K. Chesterton and those sort of things. The English. Uh, Yes, uh, apologetic <clears throat> materials, um, and I, I still remember going on a, on a retreat. Uh, uh, I think I, it was a school-sponsored retreat, oh, and I wow. <laughs> and I had decided it was bad, but I had yeah. decided that I was going to. Um, there was confession being offered, and I yeah. decided I was going to do it, and I was going to do it well. Actually, confess everything for the first time probably in my life, and not just blow it off. Yeah, and I went, and I had you know there was I was sort of overcome by a sense of 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 God and his his how infinite he is, and um, a draw to really take Catholicism seriously. It was kind of a profound experience, um, and and I had that you know I don't know if it was it may have been a spiritual experience, um, it may have just been me overwhelmed by emotions. I don't know, but yeah. it was an important pivotal moment. I I guess I'd say. Um, and then I was your typical uh, uh, neo-Catholic, rah-rah, John Paul II, uh, sort of Catholic, yeah, yeah, for for a number of years. Um, and I became, in, I'd read about traditionalism uh, online. I started to become a little bit more aware of it as I was brought every now and again to institute masses um, and really loved the traditional Latin mass, but loved it in the, you know, Sense because of, of the aesthetics. Yes, there was no of, yeah. yeah theological yeah, me um, too. I was... understanding to it. Um, yeah. But I th I thought it was very beautiful, um, and I, I I preferred it to the Novus Ordo Mass mm -hmm. right away. But yeah. I it took me a long time to acknowledge that one was better than the other. Um, and so yes, yeah. and this was before the Sumerum Pontificum. So uh, the Latin Mass was. There wasn't so as you, much of a push, I guess. So you could say you were a trad hipster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like I could yeah. say that. You, yeah. you liked it before it was cool. I did. I liked it before it was cool. Um, yeah, so that's where I sat for a long time, and, and I was aware of certain traditionalist arguments, and I argued against them quite passionately. Um, yeah. And But the more that I read into things, obviously, the more I... Um, my position became more and more untenable. And I remember one day, actually, it was in uh, it was when I was in graduate school, uh, when I was starting graduate school, um, I had a professor who was um, very uh, liberal, um, yeah. sort of an old guard liberal, uh, teaching about the history of the council, and basically admitted that Pius XII, uh, his right-hand men, had set up a schema for the council when it was originally called by John XXIII, and that the uh, Nouvelle Theologians had... Uh, had it thrown out, and that their uh, theological ideas, which had been uh, condemned in Humani Generis, yeah. uh, they had them put into the council, and to have someone on the opposite side admit this, um, and I, I, it was big for me, and I raised my hand and said, well, what justification was there for that? And he said, basically, there was no justification, it was, they, they thought this was the right thing to do, and they wanted to change theology, and just admitting all of these things that Trad say, mm -hmm. um, that was really big turning point for me, and I I kind of had a moment in like one evening where I was sitting there and reading something, and I was, you know, contemplating uh, what my professor had said, and I sort of in one moment kind of went from oh crap, <laughs> all of these things which the traditionalists are saying are right, and I've been wrong, 
and it was a very bleak. It's not fun no. <laughs> to go from. It turns your world upside down. It does. It does, yeah. and, and you all of a sudden are awakened to this terrible crisis and how, how ble- not, not hopeless but bleak and dark the situation is. Yeah, it um, is. And so that was a big turning point for me, and I've probably become a little bit more hardline now since that's happened, but no, no big changes since that. So that's, I guess, been been my road to traditionalism. My question for you would be. Like you, I had this one time where I went to confession in high school, and it was kind of just the tears running down, and you you finally have the firm resolution, like you're actually going to try to right. to right. live as you should, and you're, you're being completely open. There's no human respect. You you actually really tried uh, with your examination. Do you have a kind of Saint Paul falling off the horse moment? Uh, you you had one when it, when it became when it involved becoming a trad, but when it became just embracing the faith in particular, because to yeah. go from uh, practicing Hindu to... <laughs> well, yeah, trying in my, you know, adolescence, or my teenage years, I, I'm sure that many a Hare Krishna would probably laugh at me, this stupid kid trying to, you know, chant the names of Krishna or something. But... Uh, yeah, I don't know that. I don't think that I had any big moment. No, I think my my conversion was largely intellectual, both to a reversion, you know, to take Catholicism seriously, mm-hmm. and 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 then to become a traditionalist. I think they were both largely just reading and and slowly accepting the things which I had read, and so it was a slow process. The the traditionalism thing was was more. It was like it kind of it kind of it's very similar. It happens really the same way for everyone. Um, Usually, if people have been away, uh, they revert and they start taking it seriously. And then you do the standard. It's kind of like a standard process. I mean, I've known you for <laughs> a few years now, yeah. but it feels like we've known each other for 10 years. Um, but the process we underwent, both in becoming uh, more, both in becoming just regular Catholics, then in becoming hardline traditionalists, rad trads, has been quite similar. Uh, you start out trying to be, you know, well, I'm just going to go to the parish, and I'm mm-hmm. going to read the catechism, and I'm, let's stick to, you know, no liturgical abuse, and, the you know, John Paul II, he's, he's just, all of these liberal bishops are ruining everything, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And then it's slowly, 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 that kind of facade falls apart. Yeah, I, I think that that pattern happens quite a bit. Uh, you'll find that across people who weren't raised traditionalist. Yeah. Um, and it's just a slow process of becoming more and more aware of the crisis um, and opening your eyes to it. So, yeah. Hopefully one day we could uh, have a cradle trad on air to describe. Uh, yeah, because I, I think it's such a different experience. Yeah, it and would, be like, it would be like growing up in the 40s, but today. Right, and it seems to be kind of an, an, a somewhat new phenomenon. I mean, there's there's not very many tradle, there, you know, it's, there's not any tradle uh, trads, cradle trads. Did yeah. I say tradle? Tradle, tradle. yeah. <laughs> well, we, we could just say tradles. We could, know? that sounds better. <laughs> there's not very many cradle trads who are very old, because obviously yeah. uh, the crisis is only so old. So it's. It, I think it kind of remains to be seen how those two groups will come together under uh, you know the banner of traditionalism and what differences there are between the two. You know, a lot of you look at Protestant uh, converts are usually quite zealous, um, yeah. uh, given their Protestant background, and they they don't take anything for granted because they do have such a momentous charge into the church. 
So I think that's an interesting phenomenon, yeah, and I would really, I'd really enjoy having someone on like that. Well, we hope you've enjoyed uh, this last segment where my co-host and I discuss our road back into the church and into radical traditionalism. Uh, this is Seed of Wisdom Radio. This is episode two. We'll be back after a brief break. Welcome back to Seed of Wisdom Radio. This is your host, Philip Garion, and I'm joined, as always, by Mr. Henry Walter McIntyre. We are now in the last segment of our show, which involves education. Um, As as you've heard, our stories uh, back into the faith involved a great great amount of time uh, in uh, whether it be uh, middle school or, or high school or, or college or even graduate studies and beyond. And um, just as there is a crisis in the church, there's been a crisis in education. Um, it's quite difficult for one to find the ideal uh, schooling for, for themselves or their children or their loved ones today, whereas uh, 50 years ago that would not be a problem. We could send our kids uh, to the local parish and uh, sister... Uh, the sisters would take care of them, and we sent them off to the local Jesuit university, and, and that was that. Uh, we don't have that luxury anymore, um, and, and there are quite a few questions that every trad faces in their life. Um, should one homeschool? Should one public school? Should one go to the Novus Ordo? Uh, trad schools are not uh, these uh, panaceas to the problem. As a matter of fact, the one trad school I know about where I live is considered... Uh, a big babysitting center by a bunch of millionaires and their billionaire daddy. Uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, hopefully that doesn't affect. Hopefully any of it does our, not. But um, <laughs> plenty Coast of uh, people who've experienced that school have complained to me about it. But um, since we've both spent our fair share of time uh, in education and have survived it, um, we find this quite an important topic uh, to discuss. Well, now. Am I correct in 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 I I remember you went to Catholic school K through twelve. Yes, K through twelve, and okay. I wanted to go to a conservative Catholic college. I applied to this very small uh, conservative college in Southern California. If you can put two and two together and figure out what that school was, um, but because of uh, me not being really mature enough to leave home and uh, the financial package was not as good as the deal I got in my local university, I decided not to go there. Uh, I wanted to go to a pontifical university, the only one in this country, but I would have been over $100,000 in debt, and I thought to myself that that wouldn't be worth it, so I decided not to. 
Okay. Yeah, I I as well went K through twelve. I my freshman year actually was also uh, freshman year of college was actually also at a Catholic university, but um, I realized I could get the same education at a public for university much less. Um, for much less. So I transferred. Um, but I think that uh, that's an interesting thing. Um, both of us having been through so much Catholic schooling, I think that we are at least aware of inefficiencies the, and yeah. Right, and the strengths uh, of homeschooling, uh, then, because of the inefficiency, the, the, the deficiencies, the the heterodoxy, mm-hmm. um, the uh, felt banners, yeah. clappy of, trappy uh, kind of just washing, right. dishwashing commercial Novus Ordo. Yeah. Right, right, and and I think that that's that's a, a popular. I, I don't think that's something that's often argued yeah. about uh, in in traditionalist circles, but. The question that I think is an interesting one, and which I've had with a lot of different traditionalists, is whether homeschooling is a uh, the best of a bad situation, or is it the best possible? Is it the ideal form of education? What do you think? Well, I would agree with you and or with Bishop Williamson, who said that it was the best of a bad business, because I think today. If one has the means to do it and one's smart enough to do it, uh, homeschooling your children uh, can be a very, uh, very well-paying and beneficial thing to do. Uh, the no- if you send your kids to the Novus Ordo, they're going to get good academics and even good athletics and good technology, but it's the environment is pagan, just like the rest of the world. It's, it's actually worse when it comes to religion because they're going to present this thing as Catholicism to you that is not. Um, the public schools have the benefit of being free but they're going to push the paganism on you blatantly. Um, like here in California you have to learn about, you know, there's sex ed and you learn about Harvey Milk who is a big homosexual martyr to them and you know, when I in the 13 years of I went, there was no sex ed. Uh, there was none of this disgusting modern stuff. Um, then, on the other hand, like I said, we've had, there are trad schools, and I've heard some amazing things about some of them. I've heard that some are academically amazing, and, and you know, the it's, but we have to remember that going and sending your kids off to this place that where everyone's a trad doesn't solve all of the world's problems. Uh, original sin's still yeah. there. You know, basic human problems are still there. And then, and then there's homeschooling. Um, I don't think I don't think everyone's capable to do it just because not everyone's should go to college in my view. Um, some parents aren't intellectual enough to do it or they don't have enough time or, you know, maybe they or, or discipline. discipline. I, I found that discipline is yeah, a big and then, issue Yeah, and then well. there's also, you know, do you want your uh, child to have a quote-unquote normal, um, normal mm-hmm. time growing yeah, up? Yeah, there's because social, social issues um, sometimes. Yeah. And I've talked to some people who have been homeschooled and they said, oh, yeah, it was kind of weird or whatever. And then I grew up and I grew out of it. Um, but, I mean, you know, there's a lot. There's playing sports and, and being involved in activities and having classmates. And can you discipline them? Are they going to lag behind? You know, if you have kids who have special needs, that's another issue. You know, if my if I have a child who has, you know, ADD or some kind of learning disability, dyslexia, I'm not going to have the, the ability to basically teach him myself. I'm going to need... Uh, you know, assistance, and um, I don't even think the trad schools would be able to supply that. Um, 
So, so one yeah. doesn't know what to do. I mean, you could send one could send their their kid to a prominent, you know, like one of these northeastern, you know, wasp schools. It's. I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is based on the family life. You have to pray as a family. You have to take the sacraments and the faith seriously. And once you become past the age of 13, 14, and 15, it's up to you uh, at that point. Yeah, it largely is. And that's why, uh, you know, my, my wife and I plan to homeschool up until probably about high school age. Um, and I think it's quite difficult for for kids to get a good education at the high school level from one or two parents yeah, at the I mean, most. Even um, yeah. you know things are really starting to get quite specialized yeah. at that age, and both the, the subjects themselves and you know the content of the subjects. It's not just you know something that any old person can open a, a textbook or a program and you know know all about biology or know all about yeah. calculus or yeah. whatever. Um, and that's that's really important to me, and I guess that's where I, I where I think some trads sometimes. Um, overlook the importance of education itself and a classical sort of education. Yeah, I see that too. Um, I'm, yeah. There's there's almost a little house on the prairie sort of... Uh, just do what, just learn uh, whatever you need and then when you... Learn what you need, when you're old practical, enough, you're going to farm cows, anyways. Yeah, yeah. Right, and, and I think that that is tied in sometimes with homeschooling and I think that it's good for homeschoolers to recognize that maybe the spiritual dangers of normal education of a, of a traditional setting in the modern world are are this, those spiritual dangers are uh, large enough or uh, pervasive enough to to say okay well we have to choose a, a great education or or you know a good spiritual education and so for the sake of our souls we're going to choose the spiritual side but that an ideal situation i really think would involve it involves children in small classrooms learning at a desk from a teacher who has been specialized yep. in their in their subjects yeah um, i'm someone who believes that the education of my children is one of the most important things uh, i'm going to invest in it whether that means uh, unlike you i'm not married and i have no family uh yet <laughs> so um i i uh, when the time comes i don't know what i'll do um i know god will guide me to make the right decision but um i am not of this persuasion that you know books are books are kind of like this european thing and we need to just go <laughs> hunting and fishing i mean i like to hunt and fish and play baseball and football too but um hitting the books is very important um it's very. I think the uh, goal of any educator, especially a Catholic one, should be to foster the abilities God has given this child uh, intellectually, spiritually, and morally, so that when they head off into the world, um, they're ready to face the challenges of this world, which is hostile to us. Um, we can't put them in a place that's too worldly, because then they follow everyone else. But at the same time, we can't uh, this. We can't just shield them from everything because when they turn 20 and 21, they'll have no idea what they're doing. There'll be, you know, social problems. You don't want that either. So one has to find the the thin line between both of them. And I think, you know, perfectionism is the enemy of the good. Uh, it's not going to be perfect, but you do your damnedest and um, you pray your rosary and you take your faith seriously and, you, you know, you, you, you make the best that we can do. Um, yeah, I agree. Well said. 
Um, with that, I think we can bring the episode to a close. Uh, before we finish, um, I did want to mention quickly that as of right now, the show is still going to be hosted on Podcast Garden. It's also on iTunes. Um, you can subscribe and download or stream live on iTunes. You can also download or, or stream live on Podcast Garden. A lot of people who don't maybe have smartphones mm-hmm. or MP3 players like to listen on, on you know like to listen just on their browser, on their laptop or their desktop computer. And so Podcast Garden is sort of the place we've been doing that at. And we're probably going to be changing uh, where we're hosted. We'll keep you updated. Um, there's a lot of better options out there. Um, they are they cost a little bit of money. Nothing very expensive. It's worth but, it. Um, it, it's probably going yeah. to be worth it yeah it's uh and so we're kind of trying to figure out i guess what the best host is so keep keep uh i guess your ear to the ground and on our facebook page and, and we'll update you when we do shift um i think that there's going to be some nice things about uh switching to a different host yes uh we'll have a little bit we will have a little bit better numbers about how many people are listening. Um, it'll be a little bit more accessible to you guys. Uh, we'll be able to put up show notes, which is something we yeah, really want to be able to it do. It didn't work out with this, uh, this Tumblr uh, site we had, unfortunately. I think for the time being, uh, we will have uh, threads on each episode on Sushi Pay Domine Forum. Thankfully, the forum mm-hmm. owner is being kind enough and gracious enough out of the generosity of his own heart to basically host us in an unofficial manner and we thank him for that um we hope all of our guests have enjoyed uh these past two shows uh my co-host and i do put a significant amount of time and effort into it but we realize uh, we're going to do this on myotum de gloriam um we hope to grow in the future we hope to improve uh we appreciate any criticism uh, hopefully constructive criticism that you offer to give us but <laughs> you guys are terrible <laughs> but uh to be posted on everything the the best way would be to watch uh sushi pay domine which is uh com slash forum or go on facebook enter in seed of wisdom radio we have a page there like our page and follow it to be kept in the loop yeah, or just subscribe on yeah. iTunes. We're up, we're, up, we're up on there as well. I had some issues with uploading uh, the first episode, so I'm crossing my fingers that this episode will go up on iTunes easily, but we'll keep you updated. All right, and uh, with that said, uh, thank you for joining us and listening and bringing us into uh, your homes or your cars or wherever you happen to may be. Uh, God bless you and thank you. Thank you.